Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Juxcast with me, Malcolm Sparks. Me, Jeremy Taylor. And Alex Davis. And today we are going to be touching on some of the topics that we talked about in episode one. One, one is that, Jeremy, you talked about the shared data bank. That was something we had a discussion after the podcast. What, what is your kind of idea of the, the, what is a shared data bank? Well, it's a term that uh, Ted Codd used back in the, in the well, 1970 paper he wrote on, on relational model. So it was really trying to solve the problem of, I've got a bunch of departments in an organization. They've all got different tables of data. How do we give, these, give this organization a single system that can coordinate the, the, a view on top of those different uh, departments' information? So uh, it was always about reporting. That was where it came from, is how do we integrate these views of data into a centralized place so that you can run intelligent queries to, to, to drive decision-making, but also do transactions and run your business. Obviously, this was a, you know, back in the day when everything was mainframes and uh, there wasn't much space available on hard disks. Everything was integers and pointers, and the relational model was really trying to break away from from a more difficult way of writing applications. Yeah, I, something more abstract. I, you know, I think the relational model came from just not being able to get stuff out of a system. Just you know, if, if everything was pointers and I had to write some COBOL program to access data, the relational database allowed, freed up users to ask questions and get answers in a profoundly new way. Yeah, well, the databases have always been about productivity. It's been about raising the level of abstraction that developers work with rather than Writing disks, writing bytes to disk manually, you sort of go through the database layer and you get some productivity speed up. Obviously, if you know your application perfectly, you know you're always going to be able to eke out more performance by bypassing the database. Um, but generally speaking, databases are there to be helpful. Well, we live in a very different world, don't we, Alex? With you know, we're a startup. We're lots of startups, and almost every startup I I know have at least twenty five different SaaS vendors. <laughs> Would you say? Yeah, definitely becoming becoming a big thing. And I think it comes back to this whole infrastructure is hard problem and we want to scale, but scaling is hard because you get these complex infrastructure setups and people have realized that if you just spend your time setting up the infrastructure once such that it can scale, because most people aren't actually Twitter scale, you can have a hundred companies or something using your one piece of infrastructure and you just share it all and there's this economy of scale and it's quite a good model. So the problem is that all of these SaaS companies do quite specific things to try and eke out their own little niche in the market and they all have this infrastructure duplicated everywhere. So you have a basically a bunch of microservices with a bunch of databases but the problem is that you don't actually control any of it so if you do have a problem scaling wise or otherwise you can't see um oh, i'm gonna like look at my graph for cpu or, or whatever because it's some shared infrastructure that you have no control over and if you want to get your data sometimes that's not possible because it's in someone else's database and you have this problem where you've traded off the difficulty in building your own, I don't know, email sending or customer management tool to splitting your data across multiple places and your downtime, you know, will probably increase because you have so many more points of failure. So I think there are definitely a lot of cons to 
the model, but you know, it does save time. Mm. I mean, we're touching on data sovereignty because you use the word control there that you can't control your data, you can't query it because it's in somebody else's hands. And I think that's a very down, that's a big downside to trade. You're, you're trading something that's very important to you. Your customer's data is going off. You're trusting a third party vendor with something that's very, very important, which is your data. But I, I do think it's actually not very good for the vendors themselves, this current model. And we, we um, in Milton Keynes, City of the Future, we, we share our, we, we're up the road from Zero. Zero have a, an engineering um, center here. And as a Zero, X-E-R-O, they're an accounting SaaS. And, and I think they're like many other vendors that they, they've got wonderful accounting knowledge. And, and people have been using accountants from, for thousands of almost a thousand years that, you know, accountants have been a thing and you use an accountant because they know stuff. They've got domain knowledge. They know how to, you know, they know the rules and they know the tax codes and, and yet zero aren't just in the accounting business. They also in, by virtue of being a SaaS vendor, they're in the data security business, which is a tough business to be in because data security is a hard thing, would you say. Well, I think, yeah, any time you outsource something, you're always making a deal with the devil. You never really know how it's going to work. But yeah, in general, it's, it's an equation between getting something up and running quickly, which is, I think, what Alex emphasized. And I think in the modern age, that actually trumps a lot of things that are being first to market does matter a lot when you're trying to differentiate and win business. But the, you know, the, the risk is always you know, very hard to, to estimate. And I, th I think risk is going to be more and more important in the future as people sort of become more astute about data control and, and governments start regulating different industries more. Yeah, I think we'll see more of these sort of SaaS products that are aimed at other SaaS products. So I think we, we sort of started to see this in the banking sector where there are these startup banks, challenger banks in the UK that have, they have to set up their own tech stack. And this is very difficult because of all of the regulations that the government put on you, you know, for good reasons, right? You don't want to, to run a bank on some hack together infrastructure. So there, there's a, a startup Griffin that are building a platform for other banks to use which handles all of the technology for you and so they don't actually go to the customers and say you know here's a bank but they'll go to someone who wants to start a bank who knows a lot about banking and has all of this domain knowledge but doesn't have the technical knowledge and say well you just plug in your domain knowledge into our technical solution and I think We'll start to see that so you know the accounting firm they have the the knowledge about accounting but they don't know how to set up a cloud platform so they'll go find someone who has you know a SaaS product and, may, and maybe this is kind of what we're seeing with companies like Vercel and Netlify basically reselling AWS and Cloudflare products but in a much sort of shinier and and well-managed wrapper so i i don't know like recently if you saw it but vercel announced a bunch of new products which are they have like a kv store they have a postgres they have a, an object store and they're all sort of wrappers around existing things like s3 and neon and and these other platforms but they handle a lot of the edge cases and they provide a javascript sdk that you know anyone can really use 
at a price, of course, you know, it's, it's definitely more expensive than going direct to S3 or whatever. But um, I think w more of these sort of tools, these like intermediary layers will, will start popping up that will make it easier for people to make SaaS products. But I don't think that that necessarily solves this problem of data sovereignty. And you're still, it doesn't matter how many like of these services you use, you're still handling other people's data if you do this. And yeah, from the vendor's point of view, and as a consumer, you're saying to me that instead of my data being looked after by a vendor, it's being looked after by a vendor's vendor or a yeah. vendor's vendor's vendor. Which maybe is better because if, if it's me, like if I'm setting up my, if I'm an accountant and I'm setting up my accountant SaaS and I've just, you know, bought a, a big Linux server and I like plugged it into my internet provider and that's literally where I'm storing the data and there are no vendors, it's just me. I wouldn't, you know, trust that. I would much rather them use, you know, an RDS thing that's at least I, I, Amazon has configured it so that it has backups and it has high availability or whatever. And, and like these layers do tend to add some level of safety and stop people from doing the common mistakes. And and you might get like a case where, you know, Griffin has a banking license and their technology has been audited. So even though they're a, a vendor of a vendor, they at least have gone through this auditing process and you can trust their technology. But I still think that for bigger companies, it's not really an option, right? You know, like they want to actually host their own data. And you do see things like Hasara and these SAS or PASS or, or whatever the acronym is, solutions offer some enterprise model where they will send an engineer out to deploy into your aws or you know they'll have some vpc link so that you can actually have infrastructure that you own and, and manage but it does so get this is a this is a different model and it's an interesting model which i coined a phrase stateless SaaS, where hasura are a company they, they create a product only Alex, that you can bring your own Postgres database and say that my data doesn't ever sit in Hasura's data servers. It can it can live in my data center, and Hasura will provide me a GraphQL wrapper to my data. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like that is that doesn't solve the problem, right? Because Hasura still run infrastructure that sees your data. Right. So if you are if you really care about your data. And I mean, this is kind of just a general problem, right? In that even if you own the database, it's in your Amazon account, Amazon still actually owns the, the disk, the physical disk where the data is. And if you use any sort of, you know, proxy or Cloudflare or something, then your data is technically on someone else's servers and you've lost control over it. Sure. And you, you could even say, you know, like the DNS level or... It, it's hard to maintain full control. So even though Hasra says, yeah, you plug in your Postgres URL in, in here and then you we aren't in control of your data, they are still storing your data on their servers for caching purposes. And so, Yeah, but I, I still think you just, in an ideal world, we, can, we know that we can create a function and a function is ignorant of its inputs. It's only when you call a function with inputs. You, know, you write a function with parameters, if you're a closure developer, you create a, a, a deafen function that will take some parameters. You don't know what the parameters are, they're just symbols when you write the function. So 
Well, uh, in the in ideal world, I let's take zero as an example. I would like to buy the technology, the functions from zero, the the knowledge of how accounting works, and I would like to download their application in a browser. You know, I could go to Zero's website, and ideally, I'd like to then from my browser use their technology, use their functions, apply it against my data in a private way, such that Zero HQ will never see my accounts. Now, I I, I do accept the point of that in the real world caching and you know the other levels of service but in an ideal world and this is idealistic architecture you as a data you have data sovereignty over your own data and other people have expertise and you bring in the expertise into your company and in the old days you had filing cabinets and you'd bring in consultants and accountants you wouldn't necessarily ship out the filing cabinet you would get people in to 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 do audits and to do work and so you know i i i am hankering after software architecture that follows that model that you bring in the expertise and the domain experience but you don't let them take the data outside your well that's that's how it used to work too right i mean i'm kind of too young to to know this but didn't you used to pay oracle to set you know host a copy of their database whatever and they'd come in and install it on your servers or you buy software and it comes on a disk and you like put it in your computer and now you're running it but i think the problem with that is that it's inconvenient like you have to have the infrastructure and then you have to have a it department or someone to maintain it and it's also a very profitable model for the company selling this thing to sell it as a SaaS and have this sort of cloud hosted solution because they know that people will just hand over their credit card details and then you can start paying based on usage and the bills can get like really quite large before people really notice. Whereas if you're buying a, a disc with some software on it, then you've, you've <laughs> exchanged some money for a disc and that's it. And they're not getting any more money. Maybe they get some yearly license licenses out of you. But, but yeah, I think kind of, the money side of it is is a reason why it's gone the way it has and and maybe that is just because there isn't enough regulation or people saying like we need to we need to put in more process to make sure that data doesn't get leaked and that people have data in control well regulation is coming the eu are debating a directive called the csr i think cybersecurity regulation i might have got that wrong but this is a regulation which is well actually quite controversial because there's there's a poison pill if you will inside this legislation around you know an open source somebody writes open source i i wrote open source you write open source alex and you do jeremy we all write open source and that that i think there's some provisions in the uh, clauses in this directive that would say that we are liable as as writers of this open source but that be that as it may the the regulation of the intent to respond to the number of breaches which have been catastrophic i mean every every week you hear another data breach of some failure of data security which has leaked not just the personal details of customers but often you know if you, when experian got leaked it was leaking personal citizen data for millions and millions of people who who had which had been leaked because of third parties and 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 i think this is a reasonable kind of legislative response even though it's a bit uninformed about how software works but i do think the 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 mode of architecture that we have today with companies that have no 
have, have surrendered all their data sovereignty to a number of third parties is only because of the thinking and mindset that we have that state and function belong together. It's the object mentality. And if we could, I don't, I'm not saying we could re-educate everybody, but if we could just try and think in a functional mindset, that Alan Perlis quote comes to mind, that it's better to have 100 functions operating on one data structure than 10 functions operating on 10 data structures. This is this idea that it's, it's, it's better to keep data and functions separate, which is the functional programming mindset. And if, if that was the, the fashionable architectural mindset of today, I think there would be options to retain data sovereignty in the state and allow us to bring in the expertise of other application writers. So that's the dream. Well, there's actually an interesting overlap there with what's called homomorphic encryption, where you're able to do computation on data that's encrypted. And that gets you some of the way, but I think really know what you want to know that the hard disk is sort of in your company premises with your security teams, or whatever, sort of guarding the building. That's but a very good analogy because it's, it's a sort of thing. I can run a function, but I don't have complete insight into everything, which is the same idea of bringing a, a zero application accounting application and running it privately on your, your data that you're not letting zero know the you know your facts and figures and in the same way the homomorphic encryption which is this idea that i can i can sum up i think i can work out what the, the total sum of all the balances are without knowing what the balance individual balances are or the individual transactions are it's a sort of partial knowledge system yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely grappling for the same ideal. It's obviously founded on some very slow mathematics, which maybe maybe will get faster over time. But broadly, I think the problem you're describing is is not insurmountable. I think you know we're just relatively mature as an industry. You know, we've only been programming like you know with modern languages for you know, a few decades, and we don't really know what we're doing. And and the the abstractions will get cleaner and simpler, and it'll be easier to define these well-contained, self-contained functions. That, and, and, and deploy them into your, maybe it's a database, you know, in, into your database. I mean, imagine I was selling some SQL functions that were portable across databases. It's that sort of thing. And I think the, the more we experiment and try new declarative means of, of communicating business logic and have open schema languages, I think schema is a big has been a big challenge. It's been very hard to integrate systems with CSV files. I think you know, JSON schema, XML, these things are, are our steps forward. And, and where regulators have come in and said, hey, for this industry, we're all going to use the same XML standard. We've generally seen some fairly good, good things happen, a lot, a lot of interoperability, a lot of reduction in inefficiency, but it does require active regulation, which uh, in a large way we're, we're missing for, for many industries. I should say in full, full dis disclosure, because this is, the, this is a, a sort of a pain point that we've been working on for a while, but I mean, the XDDB database that we have is, is designed to be schemaless in order to allow different domains of data to be co-resident and, and joinable. And I think the using some of the principles of schemelessness and the property graph and the, the some of the, and of course the bitemporal features it is really allowed data to be able to be belong together and, and shared again it's this, this shared data bank we've been doing some work on the the site project which is a kind of http skin around xdtb in order to to make it very very easy for people through aw aws marketplace and docker and other deployment technologies to stand up empty 
state containers that are addressable from you know zero accounting applications that can be that can be targeted at the the data through through an api through secure access tokens and so on but building the foundational infrastructure to make it possible for you to get back to data sovereignty now that doesn't mean to say running data on prem and i think that's that's an important thing to do you may well choose as a individual company to contract with a, a very very trusted data security expert you know who to to run to hold your data in the same way as we i don't know if you have your money under the mattress or whether you deposit your money in a bank but you you choose the bank because of its presumably its its ability to look after your money safely but you might not use your bank for fashion advice or for you know so that the ability to specialize your data security vendor is based on different set of principles mm. from your your accountant it's it's a, it's a good point as well because a lot of people look at some data leak and they blame the company when really it wasn't the company's like necessarily their fault or or the way that they'd stored it had actually been safe but the user had set their password as you know password one two three or this sort of thing like people like to have control of what they own but often they're actually not that good at doing it because you do need to sort of especially when you get more complex services and you need to serve you know lots of people around the world it is just a really difficult job to do that yourself um, unless you're a massive massive company and you can afford to hire a bunch of engineers to do it so i think it's kind of like you know an impossibility that to expect people to host things themselves even if you make it easy and you have all the code available you know like these functions that you can buy expecting people to know how to deploy them and and get them live and accessible by the amount of users that they need to be able to handle is not a trivial thing so yeah i i I wonder if the whole data sovereignty thing isn't just about where the data is and the fact that it's not in my room you know in a hard drive that i can see with my own eyes but it's more about how how is the regulation done around the processes that this data is stored and encrypted and is it audited is it you know just some team of people in a bedroom that have decided to start their own data warehouse companies SaaS thing so so i think that's that's really like the important thing is if I'm going to add a SaaS to my business, you have to do your due diligence, right? And it's, and it's like using libraries in code, right? You, not using any libraries and writing everything yourself because you're scared of bad libraries does not work. Well, I tell you, in the old days, I suppose we all remember where e-commerce, the early days of e-commerce, you would type your credit card number into a, a website and if it had that little SSL tick and the, you know, at least it wouldn't be intercepted in, in flight. But you were, you, you were saying a few bunch of, you know, somebody in their bedroom might be taking that credit card number and storing it in a database. And the industry moved on because it realized that was a very unsafe way of operating. And it was much better to use a third party like Stripe where there was zero touch that the e-commerce company didn't even see the credit card number because that was just kind of done through a side channel and you just wouldn't have access to it. And then 
things are much, much better. Or same with identity. People used to store passwords in databases and now they use external identity. Login with Facebook is safer than storing passwords. And I think we'll see the same for data, right? Generally, that, that, that data is a liability. Alex has mentioned he's quite right. I, I agree that I think data security is insanely hard. It, it requires very specialist experts and it, it, it's a very, very difficult thing to get right. It, it, is, it is an expert level skill. And therefore, I think that the liability of storing people's personal data, we'll look in 10 years' time, we think, that was nuts. That was as, as crazy as storing people's credit card numbers in your Excel spreadsheet because, you know, you leak credit card numbers and people get defrauded and you leak, leak their identity details and, and people get defrauded and it's the same thing. And, and like you mentioned banks, banks in, at least in the UK, probably in other countries too, if you have an official banking license there, that means that you have gone through this series of steps to be audited that you are storing the money in a certain way and that you're not gambling it all and that the, you're insured so that if you do lose money up until a certain amount and all, you know, someone in the company manages to steal it all that there is a way to pay back the customers and i wonder if we'll end up having something like that for like really private data where it's i want to sign up for some medical app and i have to put in a bunch of sensitive medical information but it's got some you know medical board insurance certified thing that means that someone in a branch of government has gone around and like checked off that this medical information is only being stored in a certain way and the encryption keys are not accessible to everyone and, and all of this sort of thing. But we haven't, we haven't really seen much of that. Like the GDPR and other sort of regulations have come into effect that are basically rules that say, please be good with the data. But there aren't any, or maybe there are, but not that I know of any certifications or like independent audits that are widely trusted that say, you know, your data has actually been like checked out or, or the, the method that it's being stored has been checked out and ticked off by someone who isn't affiliated with the company. I, I can tell you somebody, you know, if, if you're listening to this, you know, insider knowledge and don't tell anybody, but the, the ineffectiveness of regulation is, is kind of profoundly embarrassing in our industry that you have rules of you should do this, you shouldn't do that, you, you must do this, you mustn't do that. And those rules are, are implemented very variably. And unfortunately, and I think we'd, we'd be embarrassed if we, we actually knew how poorly regulations were followed so it's one thing to say let's have more regulation but actually the in practice these regulations have little effect the things that really have effect are technical solutions and i mentioned the stripe thing but there's lots of things like that where if you build something in a, a technical solution that is easy enough for people to adopt then it solves the problem much more effectively than a rule book and I, it might point to human behavior or, or, or that maybe we should have better education. But it is, in, in my career, I can point to many, many examples where technical fixes treat regulation for breakfast. Yeah, I, I don't think I totally agree with the argument that because regulations are ineffective means we shouldn't do them. I think, I think we should strive for more efficient 
regulatory practices and blah, 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 blah. But Stripe is a good example because there are a lot of regulations that Stripe has to pass, PCI compliance and all of these sorts of things. And we've been through that, right? It's a massively difficult process to go through a whole bunch of forms. And when you're going through these forms, like for PCI compliance, a lot of the questions make sense or at least made sense at some point. There are problems in that they don't get updated very often. Like we did it a few years ago and there were still questions like, are the USB ports on your server protected against, you know, bad flash drives? And it's like, well, <laughs> ask ask Jeff. But, it, but I, I think that it's still good to have these regulations. And, and, and yeah, it should be something that should be outsourced, I think. Because if you give people the control to say, I'm going to implement my own payment processor and that's great for them they probably get to save some percentage that they would otherwise pay for stripe but i don't really want to be in a world where every shop has its own like custom built payment processing code that some intern wrote that's going to take my credit card information and i I am quite glad that we have these SaaS things like stripe where if i go to pay for something and it comes up with Stripe pay, then I can at least trust somewhat that Stripe knows what they're doing. Now, what we're trying to do here is coordinate the, the architecture, allowing people who have specialisms to exploit those specialisms, to, do, to, to focus on those specialisms and not having, not having to be specialists in other things. We're trying to create that ability the whole architecture to respect people's specialisms and and that in that is the the trick and i think that the problem is the the computer topology architecture the architecture that we're currently building goes against people's specialisms and that's where the dangers are because people end up being forced Mm -hmm. to do things that they're not qualified to do yeah and i guess if you look at the old model of how society worked you'd have your village and you'd have a bunch of people that would specialize in something and they'd all help each other out right and someone is like yeah someone is a a builder and and they go oh i can build things and then someone's like oh i want i know how to cut bits of meat into food but i don't know how to build the shop that i'm going to serve it from and i don't know how to you know wire up my candles or whatever people did and so you got all these people coming together and and they would put in their specialisms and you'd think that that sort of thing would be much uh, more efficient nowadays with the internet and that we have this ability to communicate instantly across the entire world and you know like we can have access to anyone who has very very niche specific skills but it does seem like Less of it is happening and we are getting people who have some expert knowledge but they're also doing a bunch of stuff that they don't have expert knowledge in because it's hard to find the skills yeah i think it's because the topology has such inertia and it's, it's really weighted in favor of the big companies you can invest maybe they're funded by online advertising or they're, they're venture backed it's very hard for a small independent person to really ship something without stitching together hundreds of Zapier APIs or something like that. It, the, the, the actual topology of the digital infrastructure we're, we're working with, just the, the, the barrier to entry is too high. E- even with all the PaaS platforms you sort of cited, it's, it's still too difficult, more, perhaps more difficult than it was back before SSL was everywhere. It was easier to, to, to move fast and, and build janky things, but at least people were accepting of those janky things, whereas now the barrier to entry is so high that you have to be quite established 
Yeah. Yeah. I think the phrase stitching together with the Zapier APIs, you know, ought to be the soundbite of the podcast because when you get to that, you, you realize there's something fundamentally wrong. And the first inkling that I thought, you know, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't grok this until a few years ago when, when the pandemic happened. And I tell the story where I, I was reading these articles about the PPE, the crisis of not finding enough PPE uh, protective medical equipment for doctors and nurses that were dying on the front, exposed at the front line to great risks. This unknown virus, we didn't know what, what it was capable of and, and, and so on. It was quite a scary time. And nobody knew in the country what the state of the stock levels of PPE were. Nobody knew. And it was partly because it was just loads of spreadsheets, loads of systems. Nobody knew. It was all in the pipes and the plumbing. Nobody knew. And I just thought, going back to this shared data bank, if we had a shared data bank, you'd do a query against it, go, well, it's how much PPE we've got, it's how much we need, it's how much we'll buy. The result of all this lack of knowledge was that the government panicked and the government, the UK government, and I think many other governments did at the time, put together these vast orders for, you know, PPE brought them in that they didn't need or they just didn't know. And that lack of knowledge... And we're talking £10 billion of government expenditure on PPE, right? Much of it that wasn't needed, but it was the lack of knowledge, the lack of information, the lack of information technology that that resulted in, in that kind of spend. And I think that was a, an enormous failure of IT in, in just, just one division, which is the, the NHS. And that, that's what it kind of comes down to this stuff is is real the ability to 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 know up-to-date knowledge about your systems and what your 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 world and what you're operating in in your operating environment is crucial and the delegate the delegation and surrender of data for sovereignty has real effect it's, a, it's real damage to your ability as a company to make good decisions do you, do you think, though, that I guess part of the problem is going back to the whole village thing when you have one butcher, one baker, one candlestick maker, now we're in a world where we effectively have thousands of all of those things and you don't need thousands of all of those things. And and so the government is like, we need to store some data and a government department needs to store or, or even like the NHS, right, is fragmented. You have all these hospital trusts and it's not just one organization so um people reach out to their data storage person and, and someone else reaches out to their data storage person and you get this fragmentation and you get a bunch of different implementations and because there's a lack of standards these things are not compatible with each other and it's spread out in such a way that can't really be joined together again very easily and then you get into all of these problems and even like within one business if i'm putting together a startup and i and i want to have a, a SaaS platform for sending emails and then i want a SaaS platform for sending texts and stuff and i'm using different ones and then they're not compatible with each other you you lose out on all of the shareability that could be done and i think part of that is lack of standards and people not following standards and doing things in a proprietary way either because they're too lazy to read standards or the standards aren't good enough or they just want to have some level of lock-in so that more people are stuck with them. And part of it is that everyone tries to do things themselves rather than outsourcing to some 
big system because partly people don't like monopolies and it, when one company owns the entire cake bad things happen and also who you know chooses everyone wants to be the one company that owns all the cake bro so i think there are a few problems there and i, I think almost very much 75 percent of what you've just said could have been articulated by somebody before cod say that we've got all these different ways of doing things different systems where there's no there's no central system there's no shared there's no no ability to to query a single point and that's those are very much the pre-cod era of what cod was trying to address with the shared data bank that you had all these kind of different systems and different duct tapes and different ways of doing things and no, no standards and, and and that standards wasn't the answer really what the the relational model was the answer right and and so I think this is good to introduce this episode as, you know, the shared data bank. What would your relational model be in this situation of all of these SaaS products? Well, the, I think the modern version of the shared data bank is a central governed state in a company, which is free of any functionality, which is just simply like the database was as kind of a, a free, a, a sort of shared state different applications can talk to. And the, and the reason why the shared database has kind of fallen out of favor is, is sort of an accidental thing that happened in the 90s. And I just wanted to you know, talk about what happened is that when the web came out, there was a, there was a prior to the web, there was a tendency, there was a, a thing called client server, in which you had many, many different client applications, Visual Basic, Java Swing, Java Applets, all kinds of different things command line applications, all talking to a central database, often Oracle or Sybase. What happened after the web came out was that there was a, a massive pendulum shift towards new systems written in the fashionable object-oriented technologies of the day, which were stateless. They were the Java and Latin C Sharp and, and Python and, and, and Ruby. And those things wanted to treat the database as this kind of thing that as, as a data storage engine or their, their object state. So they didn't really care about tables. They really cared about objects and making objects durable. So they built object relational mappings like Active Record and Enterprise Java Beans and things to make this problem of state disappear. But the trouble is, in a state shared database system, if everybody is doing that, then the state that you have in your object isn't reliable. It's not, it's not, it's stale, right? Because somebody else might have been inserting records. Or, so what evolved was this understanding that you can't have a single shared database and lots of these ORMs all kind of gravitating around it. What you had to have is if you wanted to have your Ruby, your Python, your Java, your C Sharp, then you had to have the databases has had to get demoted to becoming persistent stores for those systems. And so you had this fragmentation rapid that happened rapid into different data silos. And the idea of a data, a shared data bank got lost. It got kind of split up and fragmented and it's final resting places, places, microservices where the pattern of don't share your database. Every microservice should have its private database. So it looks fundamentally like an object. But the, there is a flip side to the story because, yes, you have the microservices at the transaction level, but the other side of the, the organization has this thing called a data lake, a data swamp, where people are just chucking the data. And you know, that's not, not 
hot data. It's like the, the records, the archives. But I, I think the, the, the sort of other sort of key trend during this period of time was that the, the cost of storage dropped so dramatically that it unlocked new use cases. So people started storing more data, building more richer applications, storing data people wouldn't have dreamed of storing in the 70s because it was just so expensive per byte of storage. So you've got the, the velocity, the veracity, the, the variety of data, the, the, yeah, the, the, the kinds of things people want to do just bloomed, uh, well, continue to bloom. Um, and there was some inertia with the shared database model. The inertia was, I've got to go and agree with all my peers about what the data model is, what is the central, you know, how do we are going to model everything in hundreds and hundreds of tables, how do I get shared understanding? And that was well, that was a problem of scale. There was a modeling problem. I'm not saying everything was rosy in the garden of clients at all. It did have some scalability limits. I'm just saying that it, it was prematurely abandoned as an idea. And instead of trying to solve the inertial problem of modeling and, and scale and being able to store hierarchical data and ad hoc and unstructured data, it, the, the whole thing became localized everybody wanted to have their local data store and then if they wanted to do anything they would t send messages through pipes and queues and to 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 other systems and and everything became very anarchical there was no kind of central governing authority and and that has definitely advantages in terms of move fast and break things and get get stuff done but the legacy of of that change is something that we we are dealing with the repercussions of. Well, I think the, the, the evolution now we see in this sort of data lake spaces of these table store formats, these ways of, of doing structured storage at scale, you know, disaggregated compute across the storage, it is trying to get back at that sort of rich queryability across this large data bank. But the, the problem is the only people capable of hosting that sort of stuff are people with petabytes of data. Um, and it's all the data gravity means it's all sort of in one data center on a cloud somewhere. So, so the, the scale of things is just dramatically different to what it was 30 years ago. And the, in, in truth, I don't think database vendors have, have kept up to, to meet the demands of application developers for, for what they want. So databases are certainly less prominent in, in the way people think about building modern applications than, than they ought to be. But I think also there's still the problem of schema. And you talked about it not working out because people couldn't agree on what should right to what and in what format things should be and if you had a world where all of these SaaS products didn't deploy their own database but they said put in your you know database connection string they all just wrote their platforms with that in mind that someone is going to plug in their single database to all of these SaaS products you'd still have the problem where they'd all be writing duplicate versions of the same data in different formats because no one's going to agree on the schemas and these schemas would be in different things. People would want to use different tools. They'd, you'd get some people storing serialized nippy things and JSON encoding, transit, and all of these different problems. And even though everything is in the same database, you wouldn't be able to make use of that because things wouldn't be compatible with each other. So I think if you, if you want to have this central data store idea, you have to get people to agree on schemas or at least have like some solution where you can make your own schema that takes data in different formats and stitches it together in, in such a way that it makes sense as a cohesive whole. And I think that's just like quite a difficult problem. I think it's an excellent point. That, that, and I, I would respond to say that, you, yeah, you'd never want 
you can't scale this idea that the application has direct access to your database because of this problem. Where you say the word schema, I would say that, that there's, you could do that if you had some sort of international agreement of what all the schemas were. But I think what we've got instead, and as a, one of the fruits of the web revolution, is that we've, we've introduced this idea of an interface, which we often call the application programming you know, the API, the REST API, where at least there is a layer of interaction between an application who wants to do all this stuff and put these customers in and, and the actual, as it hits the database, there is a, a, an opportunity to to make that sane and make that scale. To, so so the, I'm not saying that the three-tier architecture is necessarily bad. It's just that the the way it's organized today is highly suboptimal, but we don't know whether that's a good response to that question. But I think that we have tools today, like APIs and like REST, that at least giving us give us a fighting chance. We definitely didn't have them in the 90s. The other big thing we have is is the problem of cheap disk, large cheap disk, is that we, we store lots of data, but also we can, we can store lots of data. So immutability, I think, is a real game changer for reasoning about evolution of coexisting schemas over time and harmonizing gradually. Like I, I think if you have stable, consistent views over historical data, it, it affords us to explore and experiment with things in a way that just hasn't been tried and, and SQL as a language has not, has not kept up to date with what could be possible in the future. And you do see other sort of schema technologies like Confluent built a schema registry for the Kafka ecosystem um, around the Avro and, and protobuf schema languages. So, so there, there are definitely lots of things being explored. And for me, that, that sort of holds a lot of promise. But how we treat immutability as a sort of first-class way for programmers to use databases, I think, is, is quite interesting. And I know, Malcolm, you were keen to talk about Copenhagen again. So Malcolm and I were out in Copenhagen a, a few weeks ago at a closure meetup. And uh, Malcolm was presenting on the atomic architecture. And I did a, a talk on the bitemporal model and the history of it, which actually has a, a really nice link back to Copenhagen because back in the in the 90s, Richard Snodgrass, who wrote, wrote sort of the seminal book on the topic of bitemporality, was engaged with a, a bank uh, or a mortgage lender called New Credit, who yeah, were dealing with mortgage applications. And they needed to have an understanding, or the, the, the application developers needed to have a robust understanding and way to sort of build out this data model for the call center people or, or people entering information into the system to reliably say who owned which property and when, potentially across the whole of uh, Denmark or, or the wider region. So the, the, the ability for the business to have a, a, an immutable view over the data um, in a first-class way via SQL was actually sort of something that Richard Snodgrass spent years, decades pushing. And eventually in the SQL 2011 specification, they added these temporal operators but because of the other shortcomings that SQL has had, and you know, it hasn't evolved in quite, quite the way it might have done, and, and it's still got a lot of legs and, and will continue to evolve. It's not going anywhere, but SQL has very strong opinions about schema. So the, the, the promise of C the SQL 2011 bitemporal model is that you can keep lots and lots of versions of data over time, and then you can use, uh, applications can coordinate and, and see, see and understand the way things have changed and create different views. But unless you sort of also tie that together with, a, with an evolving schema representation, it's not really a solved problem. And so that's one of the things we're trying to get to the heart of with XTDB is how do we, how do we make a better immutable database? And I think that was why the design of XTDB was had to reject from the get-go 
this kind of static schema approach. It had to be a dynamic schema approach because that was the only way to address evolution. Yeah, I guess we could have another hour-long conversation about type systems. And Why don't we do that? <laughs> well, why don't we wrap up now and we'll have a, a third episode. Yeah. We'll touch on the seventh principle of atomic architecture, which is bitemporality, which, Jeremy, I know you're, you're an expert on. Um, but I would like to finish in saying, you know, I think, you know, despite everything we've said, there are some fundamental things that, that, that technology has unlocked for us today and will continue to unlock. And one of them is this kind of... Tr- bizarre primitive treatment of time that many IT systems have failed to model time appropriately in their and we're you know that has that has kind of kept us in a prison of of now yeah prison of the mm. now prison of kind of mediocre systems really that that can't that aren't fit for purpose for the modern world yeah so I, I guess to to wrap up then we've raised a lot of problems with the world and not solved any of them but that's what we'll do next if, week if you need any candles wiring up then just please send them <laughs> into juxta and alex will sort that for you and send them back yep all right well uh, i've been uh, alex davis jeremy taylor welcome sparks and thanks for listening